Hey, Mark, you know I've been spending a lot more time in Denmark recently. Yeah, the uh, bakery date uh, is in the calendar still. Well, it being a Nordic country uh, and everything, I found the perfect solution to streaming all those lovely films and TV shows that we review whilst I'm there. Well, what on earth would that perfect solution be, Simon? Well, NordVPN, of course. You see, it's Nord, Nordic. Yeah, no, no, yeah. It's, I get it. Moving on. With one click, NordVPN can change my device's virtual location so I can access all the content I need when I'm abroad. I can now watch poor things, whether in London or Paris. Why even wait until you're on holiday? You can do it right now and access content in over 61 different countries, unlocking all this content for less than a price of a Pano Raisin a month. Pano Raisin. Pano Raisin. To take our huge discount huge. off your NordVPN plan, go to nordvpn.com slash take. Our link will also give you four extra months for free on the two-year plan. Now, back to the show. Simon. Where have you been? Well, I've been with you on the cruise. I mean, you you mean, where have I been? I was the person that was... But when you weren't, but then, you know, we've had a bit well, of... Well, I was never anywhere else. You can't go anywhere else when you're on a boat. What's the difference between a boat and a ship? Size. Yeah, okay. But, the, so, but a boat can go on a ship, but a ship cannot go on a boat. There's bound to be a better definition, but that's not a bad working No, I think that's pretty to, good. To I'm be going on with that. top of this coffee. I'm sure the boat makers in Boatmaker's Corner will be able to explain that there's what the technical difference is. Yes. But uh, have you, while you were, I mean, the cruise was a little bit riotous, which was a little bit... Um, Did you enjoy it? Yes. I wasn't so keen on the Spano Ballet uh, Cabaret Act, but... <laughs> um, Excuse me. That wasn't the Spandau Ballet Cabaret Act. That was Spandau Ballet. Oh, I see. That was actually them. See, Tony Hadley's a nice guy, but he goes on about Arsenal all the time. And at that point, I kind of tuned out. It's all football to you, isn't it? Pretty much so, yes. Um, and did you, what, what else have you done? I'm just catching up, really. Have you done anything useful? Apart from the cruise, which I know all about, have you done anything useful with your time? I listened. My uh, child, too, introduced me to some banging new tunes. All right. Ultraviolet Junglist by Venetian Frames is just fantastic. An isn't absolute it? On Greatest Hits Drive Time, yeah. we play nothing but. Yeah. What is it called? It's Ultraviolet, Ultraviolet Junglist by Venetian Frames. That one. He played it to me and I did say that would sound great at the right speed. Because that's the kind of thing Have you, you say. Have you listened to any? Only, any, any, only what you've played me. <laughs> can it, I? Can it, I no, play? no, because it'll have to, it'll have it'll to, have to just take it out, won't it? Also, here's all you need to know. It sounds like you're having your head MRI scan. <laughs> when you, when you it lie sounds like you're having your head MRI scan at an in- incredible speed. When it, it goes bang, 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 And you can't hear the words. I also played you a brilliant track that I was introduced to called A Trip to Ireland, which sounds like the most obscene, sweary, you know, but yes, except the obscene, sweary stuff is actually a sample of Colin Firth. Oh, that's okay. From then. the King's Speech. Because the aristocrats, when the aristocrats, they swear, when doesn't they swear, count. doesn't matter. It absolutely doesn't that's count. That's right. You know the other person who it doesn't count when they swear? Uh, is the answer, um, uh, um, is it Richard Curtis? Eddie Izzard. I mean, actually, Richard Curtis is a good example, but Eddie Izzard can swear like a sailor, but somehow gets away with it. Because when they swear, it doesn't sound like swearing. Okay, well, that's interesting. Musically, I don't have much to compete with the ultra-junglist 
What was it called? Uh, Ultraviolent Junglist. Ultraviolent Junglist. Except that when I was with um, Grandchild One, as I suppose we should yeah. be referring uh, to him. Um, Grandchild One of One. And Grandchild One of One was starting to cry, you know, the way... And, and instinctively, guess what I sang? As you, you know, because obviously you sing to ch- to babies. Did you? you sing "Ultraviolet Junglist" by Venetian? No, that would have made it things a little bit worse. I think he'd have filled his nappy. <laughs> no, I sang a selection of hits from Evita. Did you? And, did you sing "Don't Cry for Me, Argentina"? Yeah, and and all the others, which are better. Plus, also uh, the Flying Pickets. I don't da, know where. Da, da, da. Exact, that's exactly the thing. Da, da, that's exactly da, da, da. what he did. And it worked. He was, da, 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 he was enchanted. Da, 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 da. See, it sounds like a lullaby. Okay, do you know how I used to get Child One to sleep? Uh, was it a selection of skiffle tracks? No. I used Lonnie to ha- Donegan's. I used to have to walk round and round the living room in a circle for hours in the middle of the night going... I'm a little dinosaur. Okay. I'm a little dinosaur. I'm a little I've... dinosaur. And I'm planning to go away, which is a hit by... Jonathan Richmond. Jonathan Richmond and the Modern Lovers. See. Or is it just Jonathan Richmond? Anyway, no, that's it. Thanks very much for listening. Uh, there'll be another <laughs> take along. You can download Ultraviolet Junglist what, uh, well, now. Uh, apart from all that... What are you going to be doing on the show today? Oh, uh, I'm going to be looking at the script. I'm going to be reviewing a <laughs> bunch of films, including yes. uh, George Miller's new fantasy, uh, which is called 3,000 Years of Longing, starring Tilda Swinton and Idris Elba. We have finally the long-awaited release yes. of uh, Michael Flatley's Blackbird. Oh, I'm, l- I'm really looking forward to seeing it, that. Un film de Michael Flatley. Uh, there is a Jessica Chastain and uh, Ray Fiennes film called The Forgiven, uh, which is uh, very interesting, which we'll be talking about very soon. And It Snows in Benidorm, which brings us to our super special guest. It does. He's Tim Spall, who plays a man who decides to leave Manchester and visit his brother in Benidorm, only to discover that he's disappeared. The brother. And yes. as if that wasn't enough... Yes, that's right. He's the brother of yeah, Tim Spall. Right. If Tim Spall had disappeared, that would be, kind of that would the, be end the end of the, of the film. film. Uh, on Monday for The Vanguard, there'll be uh, another extra take in which we'll be expanding your viewing in our feature One Frame Back, inspired by 3,000 Years of Longing. We've been asking for your favourite genie movies. Jin. Jin. Do you pronounce the gin. D? Jin. 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 No, not Jin. 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 No. Jin. Yeah, okay. That sounds I th- like. I think the Jin should sound as though you have started to say the D, but then you've changed <laughs> you your mind. You thought better of it. Jin. Jin. Gin. Gin. It's like it's. I feel as though you should honour the D in some way. Anyway, okay. there's quite a few to choose from, I imagine. Well, there there are quite a few to choose from, but there is one correct answer. Oh, okay. Uh, and in Take It or Leak It, you. Take It or Leak It? Yes, it's a top feature. <laughs> I haven't run it past anyone else, but it does involve. Taking a drink and then going to the toilet. That's what it involves. Then we'll do Take It or Leave It, You Decide, our word of mouth on a podcast feature. Mark will be talking about Better Call Saul, which he does anyway for no money, yes. uh, which concluded this summer after six seasons. Your suggestions for great streaming stuff we may have missed to correspondence at curbinamo.com. Please do sign up for our premium value extra takes to dig into all that stuff. Plus, it makes you feel righteous uh, because you are an extra taker. You can access all the extra stuff through Apple Podcasts, or if one prefers a different platform, then one should head to extratakes.com and if you're already a Vanguard Easter as always thank you very much for subscribing uh, so correspondence at Kerberdomeo.com Graham King from Whitchurch 
in Shropshire. Yes. So there we were on our first exploration trip into deepest Herefordshire, just a hop over the border from our home in Shropshire, when we encountered a community hero in the little market town of Kington. Have you ever been to Kington? Not knowingly. From the road, we saw a nicely newly painted building. See the attached picture, which I'm now... Yeah, which I've got here. Okay, you've got got your copy. Set back from the pavement, barely the width of two car parking spaces in front of this old picture house. The uh, The door was open and we saw a workman inside. So my wife, always the more socially gregarious, ventured inside to ask what he was doing. Turns out he wasn't a workman at all. He was the owner of the building and was living upstairs while single-handedly converting the ground floor back into a 1920s picture palace, which it was before giving up its silver screen more than 50 years ago. That's an amazing looking building, isn't it? It looks stunning. He had already tastefully painted the walls, including some black and white stenciled movie art, uh, and was planning to add an Art Deco bar at the back, along maybe with fitting a very basic organ keyboard that someone had passed on to him. He was currently on the lookout for some pre-loved cinema seating that would bring his total audience capacity to around three dozen, which is 36 if um, you're younger. Then he would be sprucing up the original wood and glass ticket cubicle, provided he could find a teeny person to squeeze into the tiny space. And he's hoping to have it all finished in time to open by the end of the year. Anyway, hats off, fella, says Graham. Good on you. I'd be failing in my duty if I didn't draw his heroic efforts to the UK's premier film broadcasters in the hope that they will add a toast to this champion of community enterprise. I mean, I have to say, from the outside of it, that looks absolutely fantastic. Can we put this photograph on our yeah, little socials the, thing? Put it on social media feed. Okay, so make a note of that. So we'll we'll do that because it look you would walk past and go. I hope I can go we in there. Should do a show from state. there. Well, there wouldn't be room. It would just be you or me. <laughs> I don't think there'd be room for anyone else. This, I, I once did a piece from uh, La Charrette, which was a railway carriage, which was in Gosinan in Wales. Um, it was in the back of somebody. It was in somebody's back garden, mm-hmm. and it was a, it had been converted into a cinema many years ago. And it, it was just being taken off to a to a heritage site to be preserved. But it was. It, I think it held. Ten people. Um, Paul, who's studying hard to be a future resident of Curate's Corner, yeah. uh, dear still pictures and illusions of movement. Long-time listener, second-time emergency mailer, totes over you not reading the first one. I email with shocking news. I have just been reading The Stand, a tale of mass disaster caused by an airborne infectious disease, which for obvious reasons I've only just got round to opening. Can I just say that when you said The Stand, my mind didn't immediately think Stephen King's The Stand. I thought that was an abbreviation for the Evening Standard. Stand! <laughs> the stand. Morning, stand. In the foreword, the author, no less of course than the legendary Stephen King, talks about the difference between books and the movies that come from them. Yes. In concluding, he says, quote, Movies, after all, are only an illusion of motion comprised of thousands of still photographs. The foreword having been written in October 1989, the quote predates the now infamous Wittertainment interview. Is it the origin (laughs) of such a banal and simplistic observation? Who knows? Of course, this is no reason not to continue chuckling over such a quote, but maybe if you have the privilege of interviewing the indomitable King, it's a subject best avoided. Have you ever interviewed Stephen King? I have interviewed him once. 
it was a live interview on Five Live. Yeah. And I can't remember why he had agreed to do it because he basically doesn't do very many doesn't interviews. Doesn't need to, does he? At all. Best selling author in whole world evs. But he was enormously entertaining, as you would imagine. P.S. As I haven't heard anyone else write in to say it, I can no longer stay silent. Minions Rise of Gru was poor. My, minion, my minions obsessed son laughed just once. Incredibly underwhelming from a franchise that has consistently hit the mark. Well, I'm going to pass over that and I'm going to ask you. Um, has everybody now seen the trailer of uh, Empire of Light, which you showed me yesterday, which on the subject of a series of still images constructed to create the illusion of movement. This is the new uh, Sam Mendes film. Appears to be a film based on a previous entertainment yes. programme. And spoken by Toby Jones. Spoken by Toby Jones. So hopefully we'll have lots to do on that subject very soon. Uh, streamers discussed. Um, oh, yes. Bad Sisters. Trapdoor, someone called Trapdoor. Yeah. Uh, on YouTube. This is the show to watch. Do you if think you want people say, hey, trap? Probably. Or if you want to be more formal, welcome, Mr. Dorr. That's a form of music as well. Did you know that? I don't want to know about that. Yeah. This is the show to watch if you want to see a narcissist get what they deserve, because they rarely do in real life. Although, right now, it's great. that may be changing. It is. Thanks, DOJ. That 40-page memo was fantastic. Okay. It's great fun, says... Mr. Trap, or Ms. Trap. The acting is terrific. Dracula was excellent preparation. For, is it Kleisbang? Kleis. How would you pronounce that? Well, apparently Kleis. Mr. Bang playing plausibly real character who sucks Bang. the life out of everyone around him. House of the Dragon. X-E-A. Hea. Hea. Ray. Anyway, just watch the first episode. I wish they were lighter on the gore and the porn. Really uncomfortable watch. I thought they lightened on that in later seasons of Game of Thrones. Great casting, though. Not as excited for this as I was. 13 Lives. We had uh, Ron Howard on the show, of course. Yeah. Uh, a few weeks ago. Heritage List, the first time emergency mailer. Never emailed a show before, but after listening to you talk about 13 Lives, here we go. What a film. Loved how the characters were low-key and not put ahead of the story or drama. Big Hollywood stars, but playing real-life people to a level not often seen. Uh, too often they are played as larger than life, but not in this case. Just brilliant. I then watched the National Geographic documentary The Rescue, as the film was that good. This is the real... Uh, wow moment, Colin Farrell and his real-life counterpart were like twins. I've really bored the counsellor her indoors telling her about this resemblance so much she is now off to watch the film and documentary. Hats off to Ron Howard for this film. I think I got some local sand in my eye from the Narnia area watching it. P.S. Don't tell the grand redactor, but loving the show, the replacements are always good, but we know who the real Maradona and Pele are. Down with the Nazis and all of that from Greg. The you football, re Maradona, football reference that even Pele. I get. Uh, right, Tell us something that is brand new. The Forgiven, which is the new film by John Michael McDonough, who, whose CV includes The Guard, Calvary, War on Everyone, starring your friend Ray Fiennes and uh, Jessica Chastain. Um, based on, She's my friend as well. Is she as well? Okay. Yeah. Based on a 2012 novel by Lawrence Osborne, which I haven't read. Have you read Lawrence Osborne's I have Forgiven? not. Okay. So uh, Ray Fiennes is David, who is a British... Sort of society doctor with a murky past. Um, he is a highly functioning alcoholic. As he says, I think those two things should cancel each other out. It's rather like a double negative. Um, his wife, Jo, Jessica Chastain, is, well, was a children's novelist who appears to have complete disdain for children and therefore is, you know, unsurprised that her career has dried up. 
they are traveling 400 miles to go to a party. The party uh, in Morocco, which is in uh, so a, a castle-like sort of villa owned by their friends Richard and Dally, played by Matt Smith and Caleb Landry-Jones. But whilst driving drunk through the desert and having an argument, they hit and kill a local boy. It's night and he's been drinking anyway. They hit and kill a local boy and they then arrive at the party with the body of this boy in, in, in their car. He is described as a nobody from a village far away and they are assured that the death can be dealt with, that the authorities will look kindly on it as long as they seem to be completely contrite. Ray Fiennes thinks he can do that if it's absolutely necessary. Here's a clip. So the world's still normal. Get changed, both of you. Get changed. Have a shower. Come down for dinner. Police will be here in an hour. I know the officer in charge. It'll be a formality. How did it happen? You should tell me before we tell the police. Get everything ironed out. We were bowling along looking for the sign for Asna. And there was a lot of sand blowing across the road. I couldn't see. He just... Stepped out in front of us like he didn't understand the speed of a car. The fact is we hit him, we hit him, and we killed him. So she's more traumatised than he is, but she soon comes round to the idea that, okay, this can be made to go away. Except, of course, it can't, because nobody is a nobody. The boy has a name, Driss, and a father, Abdullah, played by Ismail Kanata, who arrives at the villa and announces that the Englishman must pay and he must pay by travelling with him to the remote village in which he lives to bury his son. David says, I'm not going. I mean, you know, it'll be extortion or execution. You know, they could be ISIS for all I know. And yet something happens, either a shift in the way he perceives what's going on, or it's unclear exactly, but he agrees to go. And so the story then bifurcates. He goes on this journey to this village to make amends to atone for what he's done. She, meanwhile, stays at the party villa where all these ghastly, overprivileged, you know, white toffs all misbehave, including her. She falls into a casual dalliance with a, a financial analyst. She says, what, an, what does a financial analyst actually do other than dress up as, as Dionysus? Now, the thing about the film is, is this, that there is there's a very kind of, you know, obviously laid out table of what the, the main themes are. They're themes of white privilege, they're themes of good and evil, of redemption and uh, retribution. And all these are kind of, you know, pretty clearly foregrounded. The dialogue is full of these ghastly white characters referring to them and these people, when the people that they're talking about are not only within earshot, but literally standing in the same room. So it's very clear how that dynamic is playing out. There's also things like the driving gloves that he has been wearing are covered in blood and they are placed very pointedly on a chair. So he has blood on his hands, quite literally, the gloves are covered in blood. So that's kind of the, the level of the symbolism. But although the drama sort of runs the risk of privileging its white characters, they are not the most interesting part of the drama. The most interesting part of the drama is for example, Abdullah, who is a really intriguing character, who at first, 
you know, you can't tell whether his expression is to do with, with grief or anguish or rage or revenge. It's a really sort of complicated series of emotions that are going on. And as the journey in which he takes David to his village plays out, you do start to see a change in David's character. But more importantly, what you spend is time away from the incredibly annoying and, you know, entitled white characters. I think the film is, it's it's well made. It's solidly done. I don't think it's brilliant. I think at times, I mean, it's, it's oddly low key when you consider the sort of the, the garishness of the subject matter. And at times it can feel a little bit inert. It does an interesting job of kind of juxtaposing these bright vistas of landscape and costume that are then contrasted with the increasingly dark subject matter. And it has good performances and it's sort of enthusiastically done. I don't think it's telling us anything particularly new, but I think what it does manage to do is to is to set up what you think is going to be, um, you, there's a point at which you think you know the way the story is going and it doesn't quite. And of course, as with, you know, McDonough's stuff, I mean, obviously, Ray Fine started, started in Martin McDonough's in Bruges. And um, I think both the McDonough brothers are interested in guilt, retribution, you know, justice, good, evil, morality. And all those things are being played with in this. So I think it's solid. I think it's slightly overlong. And I think that at times it can... it. It, it can slightly try the patience of the audience, but it's it's very well played, solidly done, and its heart is in the right place, particularly as the drama progresses and we move away from the company of some brilliantly unsympathetic characters. And in that clip, it was obviously Ray uh, Fiennes, Jessica Chastain, and, and Matt Smith, and Matt who's Smith. still playing the Duke of Edinburgh in that, <laughs> in that role. He seems to have moved very effortlessly into that. I think Matt Smith's great. He he's so brilliant in Last Night in Soho. I think he's a really versatile actor. Still to come. I'll be reviewing Michael Flatley's Blackbird, uh, also 3,000 Years of Longing, and It Snows in Benidorm. You can hear from the star of that film, Tim Spall, very soon as well. Time for the ads, unless you're in the vanguard, in which case we'll be back before you can say flibbertigibbet. So we just wanted to tell you about what our friends at Rooftop Film Club are up to. As you know, they are London's king of outdoor cinema. More than just a movie with rooftop experiences located at Bussy Building in Peckham and Roof East in Stratford. Sit back, relax, get cosy in a blanket and use the QR code on your seat to have food and drink delivered directly to you. They're playing all the award-winning films like Past Lives, Anatomy of a Fall, All of Us Strangers, but also classics like Interstellar, When Harry Met Sally, and more recent films like Challengers and Fall Guy. Rooftop Film Club offers memberships for as little as £25 per month. That's not all. As a Vanguard Easter, you get two-for-one tickets on a Wednesday with the code THETAKE24. That's T-H-E-T-A-K-E. 24. Visit rooftopfilmclub.com. Hello, Kermode and Mayo listeners. We want to tell you about another show you're going to love Dinners on Me with Jesse Tyler Ferguson. You may know Jesse as Mitchell on Modern Family or for his Tony Award winning performance in Take Me Out on Broadway. Each week, Jesse takes a different celebrity guest out to eat at a restaurant chosen just for them. No repeats. Past guests include Sophia Vergara, Brian Cranston, Mandy Moore, Chelsea Clinton, and Ed O'Neill. More than 30 episodes are available right now, wherever you get your podcasts. 
Well, we're back. Before the email, I want to say hello to Evan Powell, who I met uh, whilst we were on the cruise, uh, a long-time listener, uh, she's, uh, and he's about to be a uh, fantastic oh, beg your pardon, ar- <laughs> ar- archaeologist. So, Evan, thanks for listening. Um, Susan Applethwaite in Oakville, just yeah. outside Toronto, as you know. Okay. Um, about the sounds you make with your mouth. Oh, this is to do with us? The, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think you particularly do that, don't you? Because you've been banned. I've been, been banned from doing it. I've because, been banned from going, mm-hmm. Because it means... It means I get a smack in the mouth, you know. My hu- this is Susan says, my husband's family originally from Barbados, and after 33 years of marriage, I can stoops with the best of them. <laughs> Stoopsing or shoopsing is sucking one's teeth. And it's a noise used as an exclamation of disbelief or disgust or astonishment. I didn't adopt this on purpose. It just popped out one day during a heated discussion, which mm. caused my husband to fall about laughing and now is part of the lexicon. So I had never heard of stoopsing. I hadn't. When my friend Tim Polcat moved to America, he said the best thing about moving to America is you never hear the sound of someone sucking their teeth, which means it's going to be Wednesday. Yeah. It's looking a whole lot Who worse. did this last time? Um, James and Eleanor say Friday 2nd of September is the day I get married to my dead ama- so I think this is mainly from James is the day I get married to my dead amaze and totes emotion partner Eleanor in Cremaine, County Kerry in Ireland I converted her to the church fairly early in our courtship which boded well for the future a cheery was up from you bad selves will be the icing on the two-tiered scalloped chocolate fudge cake that we'll be slicing up later awesome. love the show Steve uh, James and Eleanor so, James and Eleanor, congratulations. Congratulations. On a very happy and exciting day in County Kerry. And I must say, a, a wedding cake that was actually two tiers of chocolate fudge cake sounds like the best <laughs> wedding cake Can you send us a piece? of all time. That'd be nice. And one of those attractive boxes. Uh, box office top 10 at yeah. 27. And bear in mind, I've been on the cruise for a month. So yes, absolutely. Uh, 27 here at number 40 in the States. My old school. Yeah. Uh, this is from Craig Campbell. Uh, I'm guessing John o. McLeod's My Old School isn't going to make it into the top 10, but it may make <laughs> it into the top 12-inch extended mix. Fortunately, I was uh, quick enough to get tickets for the premiere of John o. McLeod's My Old School at Glasgow's fabulous GFT, which was followed by a Q&A Great with, with John o, Lulu, Alan Cummings and one of the pupils. It was fantastic. Most of the pupils who were the on-screen talking heads were in the auditorium, sitting around us, as was Graham Norton. They had a laugh poking fun at each other when they appeared on screen and really added to the experience. I was brought up in and around Glasgow, but didn't know the story. I was thinking I was working in London at the time, so I missed it. It was a great film, 10 out of 10, best of the year so far, although I appreciate that I had a unique experience with a couple of points added for seeing it with the real-life cast and enjoying the full Glasgow patois uh, which is a Glaswegian term, and banter. Having said that, it's such a great story, so well told, great cast that I'd recommend it to everyone, even if you're not from Glasgow and you don't get to watch it with the cast. It's a hoot, at least eight out of ten for all. That'd be good. I'm only going to see movies if the cast are there. <laughs> well, just in general. Yes. Craig, thank you very much. Number ten here, 16 in the States, Orphan First Kill. That was on the cruise. Uh, n- uh, number nine, Fisherman's Friends, one and all. And again... On the cruise. Uh, UK number eight, number nine in America, Thor, Love and Thunder. Poo, 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 poo. But quite good. It's not. UK number seven, number 12 in America is Elvis. Which I just loved, and I'm so delighted that uh, your child too yes. came came out of it and went straight back into it because that's how And if you've ever done that for a movie that you've literally come out, paid and... and 
paid paid Give not just stayed not just stayed in like, for the like, second but that showing. used to happen in continuous performances you yes. just used to stay they any movies that you've seen out. so blown away you've, you've paid, paid to go back, in, back again. in again uh number six here number four in america top gun maverick top gun maverick uh number five here eight in the states minions the rise of Gru. i referred to the previous email saying it was disappointing no it wasn't uh, UK number four, US number 11 is nope. Okay. So uh, Lolly Silito <clears throat> yeah. says, uh, my dad got me into the podcast one evening when he made us margaritas <laughs> and insisted that we watch The Exorcist. <laughs> There you go. Regarding Peel, he's uh, clearly you Lolly. the exorcist with a head full of margaritas. Lolly is just setting wow. out a stall okay. here. Regarding Peel's latest note, I had some thoughts to share. True to Peel's style, the nebulous cultivation of horror and comedy had the cinema audibly laughing and swearing in equal frequency. From the off, note was staged as an uneasy fellowship between the sci-fi, horror and Western genre, foregrounded by a tension between threat within and threat without. At times it had the feeling of Spielberg's shark looming ominously beyond the translucent clouds, and other times it seemed to borrow some of King's The Mist and monstrous entities verging between the corporeal and the amorphous. The cinematic crux of note was above and beyond the... Can I ask you above the in quotes gaudy storyline, capital G? What, okay. what do you understand by that? Well, there's, that's a character... Oh, right, because yeah. Gordy means Canadian. It also means a large fort. Oh. so But Gordy, in this case, is just like Gordy. Maybe, yeah, maybe I'm misremembering because it's now five weeks ago. All right, fine, sorry, never mind. Yeah. Right, well, it's it's not crucial. Which managed to appeal to our most primitive, preternatural instincts and genuinely burrowed under my skin. The image of the pink-veiled smile was seared across the back of my eyelids for a good few hours after the film ended. However, unlike Jaws, where the first emergence of the shark is genuinely terrifying, our first full sighting of the alien it detracted from the terror rather than augmenting it. No, I'm right, Gordy is the chimp, yeah. The last third of the film somewhat lost its way in terms of lessened intensity and ostensibly irrelevant cliche of a cameraman character and a marvelesque obliteration of a handful of people without taking the time to earn and you just sorry just read that sentence again slightly slower the last third of the film somewhat lost its way in terms of lessened intensity yes an ostensibly irrelevant cliche of a cameraman character mm -hmm. and a marvelesque obliteration of a handful of people without taking the time to earn it mm -hmm. Is yeah, no, I am right. Yes, thank you. Unfortunately, it didn't have the neatness or the punch of Get Out, and as a home invasion of sorts, it failed where us succeeded. Nevertheless, Daniel Kaluuya's acting was absolutely brilliant, and I hope to see him in another Peel endeavour. Lolly Silito sends that. And here is Ashley from Malmo in Sweden, also on Nope. Just gone out of seeing Nope, and I'm almost in some form of shock. I'm equally impressed and terrified. My only conclusion is, I guess, Don't Look Up was already taken, the title. So we'll go with Nope. What a film. That was actually from Malmo, just over the road from Copenhagen, just along the bridge. Very good. There. Uh, I know you want to talk more on this, but so Nope is at number four. That's the thing. So uh, here's what I would say. You know, as with uh, Jordan Peele's previous films, Nope has got a load of ideas and a load of ambitions, and many of them are very, very intriguing. However... I think Nope is his weakest film to date for a number of reasons. And the the most obvious one is, okay, what the film is about is it's about our, well, one of the things it's about is our habit of gazing in stupefaction at oncoming disaster. And it is therefore, you know, there's a neat irony in there being an IMAX-friendly debate about, make, about spectacle. Fine. Okay, that's an interesting academic exercise. 
It's also, um, as many critics have written, quite breathlessly, I have to say, about you know brilliant unpacking of spectacle cinema and uh, you know and the blockbuster ethos. And many people have you know made the obvious comparison to Jaws. Um, I mean, it's not just that it kind of with the you know with the the sky dancers thing. It doesn't just kind of reference the uh, the, the barrels from Jaws. It, it positively rips them off. The problem is this: in terms of the film's pacing, it is desperately uneven. When I, I look back at my notes from when I saw the film, and bear in mind I saw it without knowing anything about it, which I still think is the best way to, to see it. About 35 minutes in, I wrote, when is this going to start? There is, in my, you know, in, in my notes, th- there is a very arresting opening sequence with Gordy the Chimp, uh, hence the, I'm remembering it as a character yeah. name, which then kind of gets lost in the mix and then comes back and then sort of gets lost again. But nothing in the rest of the movie ever actually fulfills the promise of that opening sequence. There are some jaw-dropping moments, yes. Jaws, the film which lies in the back of this, I mean, somebody called this Upside Down Jaws, which is quite funny. Jaws is a film within the first five minutes of Jaws, you are absolutely gripped and people forget just how remarkable it is to make a blockbuster that absolutely has you on the edge of your seat from the start. Nope doesn't. Nope takes a liberty, I think, with its with its dramatic structure that I don't think it deserves. I think there are brilliant things in it. I think Daniel Kaluuya is great. I think, you know, it looks majestic. I do think the character of the cinematographer is the most caricatured, uh, uh, you know, character in a, a Jordan Peele film so far, and I think that there are in, there are plot holes that you could drive an articulated lorry through. I mean, re- plot holes that are just absurdly ridiculous. Um, but I think the main problem is it takes for granted the audience's interest. Now, the one thing that I can see that I'm wrong about is when I saw it, my feeling was critics will love this audiences won't. It turns out that some critics absolutely love it. And some audiences absolutely love it too, as we've heard there. I mean, it's it's done very solidly at the box office, not spectacularly, but much better than I expected. But I still think it is a better film to talk about than to watch. Uh, and just like Ashley did, if you've uh, seen a movie and you just want to tell us your thoughts, yeah, please rather do. than send an email... Please do correspondence at codomed.com. Uh, just speak into your phone, send it an, yeah. as an email because that works yeah. very well. And yeah. Ashley, thank you very much for that. Uh, number three here, number two in the States, Bullet Train. Ed says, I thought it began like a Guy Ritchie film and got steadily funnier as it moved away from that into more cartoonish territory. Really? Strangely, I laughed more as it went along, not less, like the sheer number of ludicrous plot twists and winning was winning me over. The Thomas references, is that reference to Thomas, Thomas the, Tank the Tank Engine? engine. Felt laboured but achieved an odd poignancy in the final act. Not the smartest good time I've ever had at the cinema, but a good time nonetheless. It starts like a Guy Ritchie film and then gets worse. Okay, that's the major point. Yeah. That's the major point of difference. Uh, number two, here's six in the States, DC League of Super Pets. There is nothing else to say other than, okay, fine, there it is. It's just, it's so without any sense of, I mean, it's, you know, it, it's just like, reading an accountancy log. Okay, fine. Yeah, you made the money out of it. Good for you. 
That's it. Okay. okay. All right. Very good. And uh, number one in the UK, number three in America is Beast. So this is, I'm going to see this this weekend. What do you think you're going to think? I have no idea. Tell me what the what the listener emails think. No, there aren't any. Oh, okay, fine. So I have no idea what I'm going to think when I'm going to see it this weekend. Are you looking forward to it? I have no idea. I'm going to see it this weekend. But when you sit down to see it, do you think... I don't know. I'm going in with an open mind. Completely open and a bl- mind? Yeah, a completely blank sheet. Okay. Uh, if you have a thought, it's correspondence at kerbalamayor.com. It's like the thing where somebody says, don't think about an elephant. Damn. Today we're joined live in the studio by a man. I don't need to read all this. <laughs> it's Tim Spall. It's Tim Spall. You'll hear from him after this clip. But without any prior warning, a, a letter firing me. No, we're not letting you go. It's early retirement. We? Yes. We? Well, we? I thought we were we. What? what? Yeah, we, the, the company we, we want to reward you for your... Loyalty and, and, and good work. Well, this isn't a reward. This well, how can you say that? I would love it. You'd be getting a most handsome pension. But I could still work. Who wants to work when you can do what you want? What I want? Of course. Enjoy life, Peter. That's what we all want. What I want? All I, all I want is this. Yes? No farewell party, please. A party? No one was thinking of holding one. And that's a clip from It Snows in Benidorm. I'm delighted to say that its star, Timothy Spall, is in our studio. Hello, Tim. How are you? Hello, I'm good. Lovely to see you both. This feels <laughs> like a royal visit. Does it really? It indeed? does. It does. Oh, you you oh. always light up a room, particularly with your fantastic shoes, which I'm very impressed by. I've got great shoes for radio. Great shoes. Great shoes. <laughs> <laughs> which your son bought you. He did. Yeah, very yeah, nice. He bought, he's, yeah, he knows I'm a shoe person and he's... Uh, I don't think I've bought him a pair yet, but is it this? Yeah, he's bought me another pair for Christmas as well. So there we are. You're a well-dressed man, Tim. What well, I call it careful packaging. Well, <laughs> you know, that's what I call it. <laughs> and you said the suit came from one of your productions. <laughs> yeah, I don't. Well, I, 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 thank you for sharing that with me. It wasn't a theft. It was with permission. I think I donated a, a shilling or two. To, so no, it was. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm blessed by having to get a lot of my awards. Some of the costumes are hideous, so I don't. But yes, which you wouldn't want to keep hold of. No, no. It snows in Benidorm is the movie which you're here for. Ha- describe it in your words, because it's a fascinating film. Well, yeah, it is an unusual film because on the face of it, it's a very sort of quite straightforward plot. But when you see it reveals itself, it becomes something else, far more hypnotic and strange and dreamlike. Uh, well, it's basically about a guy, a guy of a certain age in Manchester who's forced into early retirement. Uh, he works for a bank, building society. He's not seen his brother for a long time who lives in Benidorm. He's fallen out of contact with him. He decides to go and see him. He's a, he lives a life of quotidian existence. He has almost a kind of OCD type of rhythm in his life where he does eats the same things, but he goes. He's a man who's reduced his life down to virtually zero. His expectations are very low and he distrusts people. And in the, he, he says one of the first things he says, two things I can be sure of. There's two things you can't trust, the weather and people. But he's also an amateur meteorologist, so basically his only love is taking pictures of clouds. Anyway, cut a long story short, he goes to Benidorm expecting to have a bit of a quiet time and see his brother. His brother isn't there. He moves into his flat in this mysterious, fast tower block. He's, he first experiences uh, the fact that he's not there, then he goes out and sees the 
Brits, his compatriots, all doing what they do in Vanadorm. He's alienated by that. His hen parties and drunkenness in the street. and and it's not his thing, and he sees that office as a bizarre observer. His sort of tectonic plates have been shifted immediately. He then doesn't quite know what to do. He wakes up in his apartment and he finds this mysterious woman um, sort of staring at him, being kind of over-familiar, and it turns out that she works in his brother's club. He didn't even know his brother had a club. He ends up going to visit her. And she works, she's also a part-time exotic dancer and produces a, tra- a string of large string of pearls from a very intimate, part, unconventional part of her body. Yes. And she, I'm, just saying, I'm glad that you covered that. Yes. <laughs> Thank you, well uh, done. Uh, yeah, well, no, and uh, he, basically then, then you get this peculiar, very unconventional sort of love story uh, sort of uh, unra- um, you know, unfolding between them. This is you and Sarita Chowdhury. Sarita Chowdhury, yeah. brilliant Sarita Chowdhury, a lovely person, fine actress, and this is a really lovely performance. And so it's like, on one level, it's a classic humdrum guy, fish out of water, cheese, chalk and cheese relationship. It wears its, its sort of tropes almost like a MacGuffin to produce an atmosphere that is very odd and slightly hypnotic uh, these people that he observed, this is about, it's almost like the imagination of a man being tempted and himself being woken up by extraneous circumstances and weird things in this bizarre world that becomes its own thing. So tell us about the director, Isabel Couchette, because she's made 12 feature films, yes. um, which is an incredible amount of movies to have made, which kind of puts this film as a Spanish indie film. I mean, is that a, is that a reasonable summary? You could absolutely say that. It's it's a it's a retired Mancunian in, in a in a Catalonian art movie. That's what it is. And it's an El Deseo production, so it's the it's Almodovar's production company behind it. Yes, and when you see it, I think you'll taste the flavour. You can see why they are involved in it. Yeah, you know there was evidently at one point uh, early on. I think she, you know, that Almodovar himself was going to probably direct it. She wrote it and has an association with them. The thing about Isabel as well is she's not only a director and writer, she is the camera operator. And she kind of more or less wears the camera all the time. So she's built this, she is like a, I am a camera. She, she I mean, it's like a, she's very organised, but also she goes with what she's got. And you. she's very sort of um, mysterious about it about what she wants and she lets you discover it and she's quite strong about what she wants but she allows you to discover it. So you create this slightly odd atmosphere within it where you're kind of discovering it together but you feel slightly off-centred but also in safe hands. So the atmosphere in it, this is what I'm saying. I mean, to me, movies are about plot, you know, about the normal thing, storytelling. But one thing movies can do, particularly in the hands of particular directors, can create their own environment and world. And I think she is very much a person who can create an atmosphere that is very unique to her particular style. And you see her movies, they're all very different. So she creates an atmosphere that she wants and hopefully to produce it as you go along. There's a lot that's unsaid. Yes. And a lot of backstory which we we are... Unresolved. Not told about. Yeah, backstory that you're not told about, things that appear to be one thing that aren't. These, this woman that you see is a sophisticated, erotic dancer, also has her own insecurities. It professes one thing, but turns out to be another thing. So I think that's what that's on purpose. I think it would be easy to misconstrue it as being something that is unresolved 
uh, without knowing it's doing it. But I think she leaves this thing open so you don't quite know where you are, you know. It's also worth saying that that title, It Snows in Benidorm, in a way sums up the thing about the movie because obviously it doesn't snow in Benidorm outside of a particular instance in which we are given an artificial circumstance in which this happens. And because of his interest in meteorology, the film is basically about an unimaginable circumstance. He finds himself in a world that he could not have imagined, in a world that he could not have predicted, which is kind of encapsulated by that weirdly enigmatic it snows in Benidorm, because it doesn't, but it does. No, indeed, and that is what he says. He's, he's got a voiceover line when he says, you know, the thing about the weather is that the weather is what it is, but it, there's always a promise. There's something in it. Yeah. So he's not expecting I wrote it anything. down. The weather is a w- I'm <laughs> quoting you yeah. back at you. The weather is a way to feel that something's happening, and if there isn't, there's a promise. Yeah, that's it, exactly. And this, although he had very, very few expectations, that tiny little bit of poetry, this is involved in quite a prosaic hobby, is basically what it's about. So there's one... I, I see this character, My I, the thing that came in my image, into my head, was, you know, old televisions, old tube televisions, when you turn them off and it became... All of a sudden it became smaller and smaller and smaller and the white dot yeah, got yeah. smaller and smaller and smaller in the middle of it. I see this character as a man who's just about... is the white dot left in a black screen and he's just about to disappear into nothingness in his own unexpected, in his low expectations, in his mildly depressed state, in this way he is, in this mundanity, quotidian mundanity. And he goes, and this sort of poetic expectation or possibility promise is what he lives out in this bizarre um, scenario where he goes. And we all, I mean, because of the sitcom and because of what we know about Brit's expectations and why they go to Benidorm on the whole, is to get it, you know, have a good time, have a drink, have a dance, make a try of yourself, be Eat fun. chips. All that, <laughs> yeah. do what you like, you know, basically do what you like and Liberty House. Um, it's not to do, and, and forgive me if people do go there too imbibe and take in the more, you know, should we say textured side of Spanish culture and history? I don't think it's designed for that. Although there is, and this character is actually, he sees his, he sees his fellow Brits doing this and he ends up somehow going into a part of the, you know, it's edging towards that kind of, you know, much more of a, you know, like inherent vice fly, mm. flavour to it, where you get this thing, what is this? What am I talking? What genre I'm in? And then I think it just creates its own thing. And I have to say, believe it or not, we shot it in the winter, and on the second day of shooting, it actually snowed in Manitoba. Oh, it? <laughs> it did. <laughs> it did. Wow, were, were they shooting at the time? They... No, it was like two. I don't think it... You know, it doesn't qualify, but it was snow in the mountains and it was bloody freezing and it snowed. I saw it and the wow. director said it snowed, you know. so it was, One of the reasons why I liked it particularly is here we are, you know, end of the summer, beginning of autumn. And that's what it feels, it feels like an end of summer movie because yeah. yeah. clearly in Benidorm, it's, it's sunny when we mm. see you, but you're wearing a jacket, you know, yeah. so there is. And that kind of end of something feel, I think is always very, very emotive and very atmospheric. I love that about it. But I didn't know it was actually in the bleak midwinter. Really. Yeah, no, you wouldn't know because the light, I mean, that's the thing, you know, that's the thing about southern Spain. I mean, it's just that light and that, that air that the colours are so, they blind him, you know. Um, there's a scene when he comes out and he can't see, you know. Also, the colour palette in the film is very kind of like that. It's very different. I mean, she creates this slightly depressed Mancunian sort of world that he leaves and he's there he is. And, um, 
you know. So, it, yeah, I mean, it's. Um, I think it's full of very interesting moments that are seemingly one thing that aren't. And I think, you know, obviously it's easy for me to... To, to suggest these things are very difficult to explain atmosphere when you're do, talking do, about it. Do you spot it. those colours? One of, the, I mean, obviously because mm. it's your profession, but also because of painting and because of the amount of time you spend mm. painting and studying painting. Do you think you spot those colours more now than you would have done, say, twenty years ago? Yeah, I mean, I do. I think I do see a lot more than that and visual. And I, I mean, I go, I, I've got thousands of our take. I, I ended up when I had my exhibition, which uh, I went because. As soon as we finished that film, I started painting straight after, and there's about two or three paintings that were influenced by that. So there's a couple of sort of Ben Adorman-inspired sort of things there. Since I have taken to chucking paint about, I have started to look <laughs> at things a lot more and see the, yeah, I don't have any aspirations to direct, but since I've been painting, I've started to think, hmm, interesting, you know, but I, I'm i a landscape painter. You know, I do big white. I mean, they'd all be big white. They'd look like old-fashioned silent movies if I directed anything, you know. <laughs> the music for the film, is, a, is a, it's a beautiful score. As it soon is. as I'd watched it, I went and downloaded the score album, which is Alfonso de Villonga, who, of course, appears in the film. He does. As the MC in the it, club. rather wonderful in, yeah, isn't it, yeah. in that. In that um, but how in, great to see the composer on screen. Yeah, yeah, no, I know. And I, I remember watching him coming out on that thing. I didn't know that he was going to have that sort of Piero face and the yeah, high yeah. heels and that. And he's an extraordinary character. He was incredibly humble and enjoying just doing it and being on it. But it's a, it is a beautiful score. Wonderful score. Yeah, yeah. Really wonderful. Yeah. And, and as I said, immediately after seeing the film, I downloaded the score and I've been listening to it since then because it's, it's very atmospheric yeah. and kind of... You know, it ends an emotional ends an emotional resonance to some of the scenes that are kind of more disorientating. Because I did watch the whole film not knowing anything about it other than the title, which doesn't really tell you anything no. other than it's going to be something you don't expect. The movie is It Snows in Benidorm, stars Tim Spall. We're going to talk more with Tim uh, in Take Two, but for the moment, Timothy Spall, thank you very much. It's a great pleasure. Tim Spall, thank you very much indeed. Now, I'm saying that because we did take a brief pause there, and while you looked the other way, uh, Tim left the... Mr Spall has left the room. Because he doesn't want to sit in here while Mark reviews his movie. So, anyway... Uh, Although also, we've, we've kind of discussed it, you know, partly We have, and already. there'll be more with Tim, uh, as I mentioned in Take Two. But, for the moment... It's Nose Benedon. Here we go. On one hand, it is a story about somebody working in a bank who finds himself retired against their own will, has become estranged from their brother who lives in Benidorm, finally takes up the invitation to go to Benidorm. When they get there, the brother has disappeared. And so that's what I mean about it being a ghost story. But his character then finds himself. I mean, he goes looking for his brother. His brother isn't there. You kind of touched on this in the interview. One of the key characters in the movie is an absence. Mm. We don't see him. We don't hear him. You know, it's, he's an absence. And what happens is that Tim Spall's character then starts living in his apartment, starts adopting his wardrobe, starts to some extent adopting his identity or at least the ghost of his identity. The best way of describing it, I think, is this. I watched the movie knowing nothing about it other than the title. I didn't even know that they go to Benidorm. I thought it might be one of those things like another kind of Alaska, a different Alaska, whatever it's called, in which Alaska actually doesn't feature. And I spent the whole movie wondering where it was going. Where is this story moving to? What's happening when he when he first gets there and he's estranged? Then he moves into the club. What's happening in the club? Is this is it kind of crying game? So what's going on? And when the film finished, I was left with this strange sort of aftertaste of the movie, 
which was then amplified by listening again to the score. But I was in a kind of a, a slight sort of slightly woozy dream state. And the good lady professor, her indoors, said to me, are you all right? And I went, yeah, no, I'm fine. But I've just watched this film. I wasn't quite sure what I was watching while I was watching it. But it's left me with something that I can't quite explain. And I think the best way of describing it is to say it is a film of an atmosphere, of of a mood. That's why I think the music was so important. That's why your conversation with Tim Spall about the design and the painting, the way it looked... It really is an example of this isn't and the narrative is not the point. The point is his character I mean it is a ghost story as much as anything else. His character is not really in search of his brother. His character is in search of himself and all those unresolved mysteries. What's going on with the housekeeper? What's going on with the brother? What's going on with the guy who runs the butchers? All those things are just a way of getting you into that kind of that space between two certainties in which you fill in the gap. And it's a very good example of a movie which left me with a with a feeling that I found hard to shake off. And I think that is its strongest suit. Okay, and uh, once you've seen it, we'd love to know what you think. Correspondence at conanmayo.com. Uh, there'll be more from Tim Spall in take two, by the way. Because Fantastic. We'll, uh, we'll you can f- never have too much Tim Spall. A sprawling Spall interview. Tim Sprawl, in fact, Tim will be Sproul. with us uh, again if you are a super Vanguardista. Because more is more. It's the ads in a minute, Mark, unless you're a Vanguardista, obviously. Uh, but first, it's once again to step into the so-called laughter lift. Oh, no. <laughs> I'm laughing. This is terrible. I'm actually laughing at you laughing. This is, this is really annoying. Yeah. Okay. When you press that door close button, it never works. Anyway, this music is great. Don't is that an ad lib? I don't know. I think so. <laughs> now, can I just say... The ads, the, the ads, the, ads. the ads, the jokes, are the same kind of yeah. thing. The jokes are a little bit average. Thin on the ground. And there's only two, so I'm going to add one. Okay, fine. Okay. okay. I'm not sure about you, Mark, but I've taken up a new hobby over the summer. What's that, Simon? Blindfold archery. You should try it. You don't know what you're missing. Anyway, I've decided... Please tell me that wasn't the one that you added. This elevated Please tell music. me that that was already there, that you didn't voluntarily I, add I didn't that add joke. That one. This elevator music actually, I've decided, doesn't get any better, does it? It's bad on so many levels. Shh. I thought, okay, well, I'm going to add to that a See, joke. I've heard another version of that lift, that joke about somebody farted in an elevator. It was wrong on so many levels. Yeah, all right. Here is a, jo- here is a joke from the new edition of The Economist. Who used- <laughs> no, hold on. Hang on. This is a joke from The Economist. Yes, yes but it's an economist right, Ladies joke. and gentlemen, do you want to change the music? Do you want to put on something more somber? <laughs> ladies and gentlemen, a joke from The Economist. Well, I just thought it needed an extra something. Yeah. Okay. The, the Economist have supported this podcast. They have indeed. They have indeed. And maybe they'll support us again in the future. Okay, but they're not paying for no, this joke. It's from the new edition. Okay, here we go. This is from an article about uh, changes being made to constitutions around the world. Excellent. A man walks into a library and asks for a copy of the French Constitution. I'm sorry, replies the librarian, we don't stock periodicals. Now, this is funny to French historians because uh, France has had 16 constitutions since 1791. And so, therefore, (laughs) it's a rather fabulous joke. A joke, ladies and gentlemen, from from The the Economist. Economist. What is still to come later... (laughs) 
Once you stop laughing. <laughs> Sorry, um, I've lost the. You're going to be reviewing three thousand years of longing. I'll be reviewing three thousand years of longing. And Blackbird and Blackbird. Back and up. what else? And yeah, that's it. That's, really. a, that's all there is. Back after this, unless you're a Van Gogh. <laughs> More Easter, jokes from the Economist. In which case, still to come. Your service will not be interrupted. <laughs> Well, we're back, and here's the joke I missed out. There's an extra joke. Hang on, there was a joke that you missed. Yes. <laughs> so you, so hang on. So you pulled in the joke from the Economist, but you left out one I of the Simon Bull's jokes. I think it is a good I joke. I think the joke from the Economist g- gave us some heft, some presence, because people would be going, "My word, that's a smart joke." I know. We're 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 it's an ABC One joke. We're dumbing up, that, definitely. So anyway, here's the joke I missed out. Mark had an eye test last week. Did you? Guess who I bumped into on the way to the opticians? Well, that's the joke, yeah? Yeah. Okay. That's the joke. Yeah. Anyway, the redact- I'm actually not sure that that was... Would you rather the joke from no, The Economist? No, I thought the joke from The Economist about the French okay. constitution being available as a periodical if, if was you better. Have, if you have highfalutin jokes that would actually fit into The Economist... Highfalutin, root and tootin. We would like to hear them. Because we could do a highfalutin... <laughs> I tell you, here's the thing. What, what is the most highfalutin joke you know this is like the empress new clothes right yeah. send us the most erudite erudite highfalutin joke that you have on the because when you previewed the economist joke with me last night i laughed even though i didn't understand why it was funny until you then went on to explain it yes I just laughed because it was the punchline of a joke. <laughs> it's just my natural reaction. So, so, what you, so send us a highfalutin joke, but also tell us where to laugh because exactly. we might not be laughing at the right place. Exactly. You and, have to sound and intelligent. Then, and then explain why it is that it's funny. Yes. Yes. Thank you very, very much. Very good. Correspondence at kerbinamayo.com. Raising the bar. Will Gubbins. That's a great name. Time for some more Gubbins. Um, you can dear, never have too much gubbins. Dear Ding and indeed Dong, long-time listener, first-time emailer, your discussion regarding bell ringing and snapped staves triggered a flashback. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. In my early teens, I was a bell ringer. For, this is because I was a bell ringer yeah, back you were. in the day. The promise of 20 quid for 15 minutes work, two to three times a weekend, ringing at weddings, lured me in. I persisted for around two years before my burgeoning career was brutally cut short at a ringing competition where many church groups all descended on a small village. As a big lad, I was frequently on bell four or five. The are, they, problem, are they the larger bells? Well, I was bell four and I was never a big lad, I have to say. But anyway, maybe they were heavier bells. It was the first ring after lunch, and we were ringing away quite happily when terror struck. As it's 22 years almost to the day as it happened, that it happened, quite how the sequence of events started are lost to time. However, I think I possibly sneezed at the worst time and did not pull back down to reverse the bell's momentum. The stay, the stay is the thing that stops the bell swinging round, smashed and the bell kept on swinging. My arm had somehow ended up tied into the rope and I was dragged to the (gasps) sky like a terrified pubescent Mary Poppins. Luckily, the quick-thinking conductor jumped and caught the tail, so uh, presumably the tail of the rope, so I suspect... This is terrifying. It is. I suspect I only made it two or three feet in the air, but in my mind's eye, I was all the way to the belfry, Never let the truth get in the way of a great story. So you're basically in the belfry. This is like a cartoon. It is. Anyway, no broken limbs, but I never rang again. Enjoying the new format, I'm halfway through Midnight Mass, so now I've paused a half-listened-to-episode to go back to. Please keep the spoil-everything as take three to reduce my podcast stress. Thanks for being there almost every week for the past 14 years through medical school and beyond. You truly provide astonishing value. Hello to Jason and up with Bluehead Feminists. Uh, thank you, Will Gubbins. 
Uh, if you have any more gubbins, you can send them to us, correspondents at Kermanomino.com. Now, here is the moment we've all been looking forward to, particularly me, ever since Mark... <laughs> particularly me- Particularly me, because you messaged me to to let me know that you'd just seen the new Michael Flatley movie. Did I? Yes. I, I don't even remember what the message was. Well, you were just so excited and I thrilled was. to be there. Blackbird, unfilmed de Michael Flatley. And it is unfilmed, uh, Michael Flatley, mm. since it is directed by Michael Flatley, written by Michael Flatley, oh. produced by Michael Flatley, and indeed starring Michael, Michael Flatley. Flatley. I'm worried already. Just in, in case, I mean, for anyone who doesn't know, Michael Flatley is best known Lord, as... He's Lord of the Dance. Yes, and uh, Dance Lord Productions. Yes, present that's right. Michael I mean, basically, Flatley after 20 seconds, Michael Flatley film, I've kind of I've seen enough of that. <sighs> The film was, in fact, self-funded by Michael Flatley, although in an interview some time ago, because this was back in 2018 that it was made, he explained that it wasn't a vanity project. He self-funded it because, quote, it would have just taken too long to raise the money. And I didn't know what I'd be doing next year. And when the window was there, we had to get it of done. Of course you did. And that's exactly it. There's no, no sense of, of that. Being, that's a completely reasonable explanation of why... Do you think the multi-millionaire people, Michael Flatley? Yes. I'm sure he had many offers, many people offering. We'd to make like this to film fund your him, film. It looks such a great movie. It was just so much easier to just do it himself. Okay. Do you want to hear? The, you want to see the trailer or hear the trailer? Or yes. do you want the trailer? Yes, let's do the trailer. Here's the trailer. It's going to be great. Michael Flatley's Blackbird. The Blackbird is dead. You're the only one who can stop this. We've got to come back and fight. When are we going to get past this? I'll never get past this! You can't just hide from the world. Victor Blackley, I believe you have something in mind. Who I am is none of your concern. And what I do is out of your control. Bless me, Father. For I have sinned, and I'm about to sin again. Here's the thing, before you... I, <laughs> now, I haven't seen it, but I have just seen the trailer. We've said before, you can make anything look good in a trailer. Yes. Apparently. <laughs> <laughs> that was... I mean, obviously, you, obviously you just listened to it, uh, but there's, there's in that clip, Michael Flatley has to kiss somebody. Mm-hmm. The most straightforward thing you'd have to do in a Not movie, I, I imagine... It looks, even that looks, he can't kiss. He's called it a tribute to the golden age of cinema. Mm. I think a session on the golden toilet of cinema is is, is closer. So um, he is Victor Blackley, an ex-MI6 operative who we meet burying the love of his life in the rain, wearing a hat tipped at a certain angle. Apparently he's retiring, which is a shame because as Patrick Bergen's character, Patrick, where's the check? Bergen's character says he can do things that no other man can do. Like, and incidentally, like dance. Like dance. <laughs> and he's not referring to the dancing. Fast forward some years, he's now turned into Humphrey Bogart oh. in the white, you know, dinner jacket. He's Humphrey Bogart in Casablanca, except he's running the Blue Moon in Barbados, wearing the tuxedo. The, tu- the, the, the Blue Moon is like a, a haven for a whole bunch of people. You know, in the same way that everybody came to Rick's, mm-hmm. where it turns out that everybody comes to Victor's, including Eric Roberts, who is a top crim. How do we know he's a top crim? Because he's Eric Roberts. That's, that's the role that Eric Roberts does. He's there to do some very shady business with some very shady people, including something involving a formula 
with a plot that seriously appears to have fallen off the back of an old episode of Thunderbirds. Oh, great. It's literally, it's got this formula thing. You know, in, in the wrong hands, this could be, in the right hands, this could cure all diseases, but in the wrong hands, it could do absolutely the opposite. Worse, he's turned up with a glamorous woman from Victor's past. Yep, you know, in all the bars, in all the gin joints, in all the world, she had to walk into his. Now, he that must then decide whether or not to just let the guests get on with their evil crim stuff or whether, you know, the problems of two people don't amount to more than a hill of beans in this crazy world and there are more important things like saving the lives of millions of people. The film dates back to 2018 and apparently in 2021, so there was at least a three-year gap between the film. I mean, for ages and ages, people were trying to see it or asking if it had been finished and it was all kind of shaded mystery. At the 2021 Monaco Streaming Film Festival, Michael Flatley won the award for Best Actor. Now, I couldn't find a short list of other eligible actors at the 2021. He was better than. Honestly, unless the competition was a selection of teak furniture and an animated version of that line character from the IKEA catalogue who shows you not to hit the furniture with a hammer... I really can't imagine how Michael Flatley won Best Act. I mean, to say that Michael Flatley can't act is being unbelievably... His entire acting style is, which angle shall I wear my hat at? Slightly on the left, slightly on the right, <laughs> slightly turned down, off my head, on my head. It's There are so many expressive ways of where... It's, I mean, watching him act is like watching somebody learn to do something in public but not learning at the same time. I mean, I've seen a lot of very bad performances. This is in a stratosphere of its own, but of course, brilliantly, he's doing dialogue that he has written for himself. How does it compare with Gordon Ramsay, playing Gordon Ramsay in No Ordinary Trifle? It's worse. Worse than that. It's worse than Gordon Ramsay playing Gordon Ramsay in No Ordinary Trifle. Worth remembering, however, at the 39th Golden Globes, and I brought this up before, Pia Zadora won an award for Best Female Newcomer for Butterfly, which was a film which was financed by her multimillionaire husband, which he kind of, you know, he gave her as a present a film to star in. She then, of course, won, you know, the Razzies for, you know, worst picture, worst actress, worst new star. So in many ways, Michael Flatley in Blackbird is the Piazzadora du nos jour. The difference being that he has financed his own gargantuan, you know, what's the phrase? You can't polish a turd. Vanity projects. Can we say in in our new liberated world? Can we say that? I that's think a, that's perfect. I think fine, that's fine. I think that's just yeah. okay. Wow. So yeah, just so, gotta make a note of that. Vanity projects are you know one thing. Insanity project is closer to describing excellent to describing a movie in which Michael Flatley, who the last time I looked, five foot nine, I think, takes out with his bare hands an opponent who is literally like the size of a wardrobe, huge, muscle-bound. But when he comes at Michael Flatley, Michael Flatley has written himself a role in which he can beat the living daylights out Mm. of this person. Michael Flatley has also written and directed himself a role in which glamorous women walk into his bedroom, drop their clothes, and he says... Not tonight. Not, not tonight, Josephine. I have other more important stuff. To do. I mean, obviously that happened because he can do things that no other man can do. Apparently so. And they don't mean the dancing. So he's literally written these. It's a succession of eye-wateringly terrible vignettes 
in which somebody has given themselves the role of superhero, super fighter, super intelligent, super swish, super suave, Humphrey Bogart. For, and you go, I'm, I'm, I'm really sorry. If, you, if you'd written this for somebody else, it would be sad. Writing it and directing it for yourself is positive. I mean, it's not just bad. It's eye-wateringly awful. There are scenes in this that Tommy Wiseau, who made The Room, would have gone, I'm sorry, that's actually not up to snuff. We're going we're gonna to have to take that out. It's, it's not cinema. This is what happens when people with a staggering amount of money decide that rather than buying themselves a sports car, they will buy themselves a star vehicle in which they can play the heroic figure they had always wanted to play. Now, I want to be absolutely clear about this. I haven't... I'm sure Michael Flatley is a brilliant dancer. Is that right? I've never seen Apparently him. Apparently so, yes. Apparently I so. I've seen film of him doing his tappy-tap thing. <laughs> That's essentially what it is. Okay, fine. Yeah. Please stay doing the tappy-tap thing. This is not cinema. This is something so staggeringly self-regarding. It's The only way this film can have existed is if the same person wrote, directed, starred, produced in it. Because if you were in a room with other people and you showed them a scene from this movie, unless you were paying their wages, there's no way they wouldn't go, I'm sorry, you cannot put that in a... You just can't. You. It's like, n no, don't let that out into the world. Keep it for, on your own mobile phone for your own personal viewing. Yes, maybe if you want to sit at home for a bit of self-aggrandizing half an hour of relaxation, fine. Yes. Do not show this to other people. It is genuinely, and I mean this, to one of the worst films I have ever seen. <laughs> and as we all know, I've seen oversexed rug suckers from Mars. You know, yes. I've seen Exorcist 2, The Heretic. I've seen... Sex Lives Tommy, of the Potato Men. Sex Lives of the Potato Men. It's, it's so mind-bendingly awful. But the most brilliant thing is this. When I was trying to find out <clears throat> that thing about I mean, I couldn't, they sent in the publicity release a thing that he won the award for best actor at the Monaco streaming. I thought, this can't be right. I looked it up. I couldn't, it's very hard to find anything about the Monaco streaming film festival. It is true that it happened. And after it happened, there's a piece online in The Sun, The Sun, mm -hmm. which says, Lord of the Dance Michael Flatley has been tipped to enter the frame for an Oscar. I don't think so. After receiving acclaim for his long-anticipated passion project, Blackbird. Tipped by who? No one. Precisely. Then goes on to say, I'm sorry, whoever wrote this article should be ashamed. Uh, the US tapper's odds of walking off with a gold statuette next year have been slashed from 100 to 1 to 50 to 1. Let me just say this for the record. There is no universe. There is no realm of existence other than the Monaco 2021 Streaming Film Festival in which Michael Flatley could win anything for anything in this movie, least of all his acting. It is dismally written. It is pathetically directed. It is embarrassingly acted and it is financed from the purses of the person who put themselves on screen to go, look at me, I'm a super spy. You're not. You're the lord of the dance. Tappy tap. <laughs> is it worth seeing for a laugh? No. Okay. <laughs> Excellent. Uh, very good. If you'd like to, if you if you go and sit, well, just don't go and sit. Just don't. I mean, don't. We, just we, we don't. We just saved you. It's a home movie. Quid.
It should be seen in private by the person who made it. And that's all. Uh, what's on? Quick uh, quick. what's on uh, where you email us a voice note, please. Uh, very clever about your festival or special screening from wherever you are in the world. Correspondence at KermitMO.com. This week, uh, Eleanor Hollington from Peckham and Nunhead Free Film Festival. For those in or near southeast London, we're running the Peckham and Nunhead Free Film Festival. Yes, all screenings are free from the 8th to 18th of September. You can expect local premieres, documentaries, horror, filmmaking workshops and family-friendly films. Plus, outdoor screenings of Bend It Like Beckham on Peckham Rye Common and Coppola's Dracula at Nunhead Cemetery. Hi Simon, hi Mark. This is Gemma from the Independent Cinema Office. This month we're delighted to be launching our new national touring programme, Right of Way. Examining access and inclusion in the UK countryside, the programme pairs brand new artist films with rare archive film material to explore historical and contemporary discussions on who has a right to the great outdoors and who is excluded from it. More information can be found at independentcinemaoffice.org.uk. Gemma then from the Independent Cinema Office and Eleanor from the Peckham and Nunhead Free Film Festival. Uh, send your 20-second audio trailer, please. And if you can act slightly better than flatlining, that'd be fine. Uh, anywhere in the world, we'll take this from wherever you are. Uh, correspondence at Kerberdomeo.com. A couple of weeks up front would be great and we'll give you a shout-out. Uh, or to be precise, I guess you'll give yourself a shout-out. Shout out. Uh, because we don't have to do that. Uh, anyway, um, let's get another movie on. 3,000 Years of Longing, which is an adult fantasy adapted from a short story, uh, The Gin and the Nightingale's Eye by A.S. Byatt. This is directed by George Miller, who made Mad Max films, Witches of Eastwick, Babe, Happy Feet. So, you know, has walked the full counter of fantasy filmmaking. Tilda Swinton is Alethea, British narratologist scholar, who appears to be doing very well. Narratologist? Yeah, she's a scholar of of narration. Of stories, okay. a scholar of stories. Okay. She travels the world investigating lecturing upon the origins and meanings of myths and stories. She's haunted by visions which blur the line between stories and reality. And when she's in Istanbul, she she buys a misshapen bottle from which emerges a djinn, genie, by, played by Idris Elba, who offers her three wishes. However, she's well-versed in such stories and she knows that offers of wishes are also cautionary tales. Here's a clip. You mock me. Three wishes, perfectly simple and theoretically safe. I was imprisoned by Solomon precisely because I cried out my heart's desire. Only by granting you yours may I earn my release. Yes, well, I appreciate the symmetry, but the thing is this. I cannot for the life of me summon up one eligible wish. And you're asking me for three. Is there any life in you? Are you even alive? You know, in some cultures, absence of desire means enlightenment. Then you are a pious fool. If I'm content, why tempt fate? And you're a coward. Don't goad me. See, I really like Tilda Swinton and I really like Idris Elba. And what happens here is that, you know, rather than coming up with the wishes, she basically asks him to tell her his story, which he does, how he was captured, put in a bottle not once but several times because he enjoyed the company of women. His story goes back to the Queen of Sheba, through to the present day, involves him falling in love. And during the course of the story, she falls in love with him. So it's a story about somebody falling in love with stories. Now... George Miller has worked across, as I said, a range of fantasy genres, action, animation, you know, he, he knows how to do this. The problem is the film is utterly baffling because it's essentially, it, it's like watching a story that's designed to be read or, or maybe to be heard as, a, as an audio book, but almost certainly not to be visualised. I kept thinking of Vincent Ward's film, What Dreams May Come, or Peter Jackson's The Lovely Bones. Both of these are works by visionary filmmakers who somehow managed to make the afterlife look like, you know, Super Mario world or something. There's something 
really unforgivingly literal about the C- the omnipresent CGI that seems to strip the story of the very magic that the stories that it's talking about have. And when you're watching a story about stories, but you're being distracted by the computer visuals, that's the point at which you think, okay, this isn't working as a piece of cinema. As I said, I think that uh, Idris Elba and Tilda Swinton are good. There is a gorgeous score by um, Tom Hock- by Junkie XL, Tom Hockenborg, um, which at times reminded me of the themes from Rachel Portman's Never Let Me Go, which is one of my favourite scores of all time. But despite all that, I kept thinking this would work so much better as an audio book or this would work so much better as a radio play, or this would just work so much better as a printed short story. It doesn't work as a film, and that's a shame. We'd love to hear from you for uh, our next programme. Just get in touch, correspondence at kerbinamo.com. On any of the issues uh, that you've heard, any of the movies that we've discussed, that's the end of Take One. Production management and uh, general all-round stuff, Lily Hamley, cameras, Teddy Riley, videos on our tip-top YouTube channel by Ryan O'Meara. Johnny Socials was Jonathan Imieri. Studio engineer, Josh Gibbs. Flynn Rodham is the assistant producer. Guest research was Sophie Ivan, the producer, Hannah Talbot. She kind of does almost everything. The redactor was Simon Poole. Mark, your film of the week. Well, I think it's a qualified film of the week for The Forgiven. Which we had right at the beginning of the, right the, beginning, right the beginning of the podcast, well, and qualified because it's mm, mm, film of the week, mm. Mm, film of the week. Uh, thank you very much, Steve, for listening. Extra takes available on Monday. More Tim's ball in that. Thank you. We'll see you then. <laughs>